Say hello and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane, your host. I will be joined by Regan DeLoggins, hopefully uh, sooner than later. <laughs> uh, and uh, I guess, I'm not sure, am I supposed to wish everybody else a happy National Native American Heritage Month, or is everybody supposed to wish us that? Uh, Reg, do you have any clarification on that? I, I thought it was... I thought it was uh, acknowledging uh, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day for uh, for the month oh, of for the uh, month. November. <laughs> so, Happy Indigenous Peoples Day month. I'm sorry, Happy Indigenous Peoples Month. <laughs> oh no, no, it's it's only about heritage. It's it's I, I know. I, I'm heritage confusing month. myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's our special month anyway. So we're heritage gonna, we're, month. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Go. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> do we have Regan on with us yet? Still waiting. Okay, all right. I know she was looking forward Still, to, to, yeah. to, to doing this. Um, look, here's the, here's the deal. Every November, presidents, including the last one, believe it or not, <laughs> signs an executive order recognizing November as National Native American Heritage Month. And, and, of course, they always do it by parading the most assimilated Native people they can to be at the signing. So they'll, you know, Deb Haaland, of course. I mean, she's, I mean, she is the, the epitome of somebody who's crossed over to the other side. She works for the president. She serves at the pleasure of the president. She is not necessarily a native um, representative. She's a native who works for the federal government. And of course, they usually parade some, some Native American veterans because uh, the, the much uh, ballyhooed um, rate of enlistment um, among Native people is higher than for, for most um, other ethnicities. So these are the kinds of things that get propped up um, at the signing. And then we really don't hear much else. So we're going to talk about some of the issues that continue to be ignored um, even during our special month. And of course, in case you're not familiar, it is while it is National Native American Heritage Month, what they usually designate as our special day in this month also coincides with Black Friday. So, so, so one of the most, you know, uh, vulgar displays of capitalism is, uh, is the day that we get shared. Um, uh, the day after, again, another mythological holiday, uh, American Thanksgiving is the day that gets designated as, as National Native American Heritage Day. Um, you know, usually I get a call or two during this month to, to come speak to schools. And, and of course, that hasn't happened for a couple of years because of things like COVID and that kind of thing. Uh, but in general, even as things have laxed a little bit, uh, my phone's not ringing. And there's a reason for that. Look, I, I am, and Regan, we represent the contrarians here. We, we have a hard time getting too excited about... Um, you know, appointments and special holidays and special, uh, you know, recognition and that kind of stuff, because it, it usually falls very, very short. And, and it almost always represents more lip service than, than action. And, you know, one of the things that, that I kind of stirred the pot a little bit over, which is the, um, this idea of, um, not just truth, but reconciliation associated with, uh, with residential schools. <clears throat> On the Canadian side, 
you know, back in between 2008 and I think 2015, they, they actually ran a commission, a federally, a Canadian federally funded and uh, orchestrated commission to study residential schools. And it was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And there was some truth, uh, not all truth. I mean, they, they certainly didn't deal with what's now in the news cycle, uh, uncover the, the number of uh, children who were, um, who died, who perished in these schools. I mean, I know, look, if you're a white folks, you're not used to this idea that people can go to school and die in school and then be buried in the backyard. I know that sounds unfamiliar to you, um, and it should sound unfamiliar to everybody, but that's not the case when it comes to 100, and some say as, as high as 150 years, depending on how you break down what these schools actually were, residential schools versus day schools. But over 100 years of these residential schools, they are laced with uh, just incredible amount of suffering uh, on the, the part of the children, um, including including deaths and then, of course, being buried in these schools. That wasn't covered much in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The, one of the calls that came out of that Canadian uh, TRC was for there to be a proper investigation and a full accounting of the of the deaths that occurred in, the, in these schools. But, uh, but Canada didn't do that. What we've seen recently in the news cycle has been really more geared towards um, native territories and native communities taking it upon themselves to hire uh, engineers to come in with ground, penetra ground penetrating radar to find some of these, uh, these mass graves, these unmarked graves for themselves and, and do their own assessment. And the last figure that I heard, and I don't want to get hung up on the, on the numbers as they tick up, but the last number that I heard were somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,200 children that they have confirmed through, you know, either through some of what came out of the TRC, but uh, also what's come out of this, um, this ground penetrating radar, only for a handful of these schools, by the way, um, 7,200. The, yeah, my guess and, and, and again, I'm, I'm just basing it on the total number of schools and that kind of stuff. When, when all is said and done, if there's ever an accurate number, that number of, um, of unmarked graves and, uh, and marked graves, for that matter, uh, on, associated with these residential schools will probably top over 15,000. On the Canadian side alone, mind you, keep in mind that there were, that there were somewhere between three and maybe even four times as many schools on the U.S. side. So the likelihood is that there will be, if the same thing happens on the U.S. side, which hasn't even begun, by the way, which is part of what I, why I bring this up, um, when that gets done, yeah, it, the, the numbers on the U.S. side will probably top over 50,000. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, I've got a researcher from, uh, originally from Dartmouth who was working with UCLA, I think, or, or University of California. Um, I'll, I'll clear, that, clear that up later. Um, who was doing research on just the deaths in four U.S. residential schools. And uh, so I'm anxious to hear what his, his assessment is going to be just based on the limited number of schools that he's looked at. When pe people talk about truth and reconciliation, truth is usually hard enough all by itself. But the idea of reconciliation, one of the things that I stirred the pot with this, this week was posting a meme that suggested we could not have reconciliation associated with residential schools if we do not include 
and I mean on the front end, not the back end, restoration of land and restoration of our autonomy. Now, we can get into a lot of different discussions on what restoration of land looks like. Um, now, keep in mind, I said restoration of land, and that includes land back, as I wear my land back shirt today. Um, but it's talking about restoring the land because that is, is key to what we're all experiencing with environmental degradation and, of course, you know, climate change and, and that kind of thing. But, but I also want to be clear that turning a native, turning native ancestral land into a national monument is not restoring land. And it's certainly not restoring it to us. It's, it, it is not land back. Um, however this thing plays out with Old Flats, the likelihood of, of us reclaiming that territory so that land is restored to our control is, is unlikely. But these are the conversations that need to be had. And I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit more about that. But I also want to talk about restoring autonomy. I mean, you have to understand that, that what took place during this 100 plus years of residential schools in both the US and the Canadian side was not just torturing children for the, you know, for the pleasure of torturing children. <laughs> it was about destroying a people. It was about diminishing our population, separating our population from our land, then redistributing our land to the United States and Canada, and then reducing our identity our identities to the point where they could where they no longer had to recognize us as distinct people. I mean that was the goal. I mean that was the absolute goal of of residential schools. So if we're going to talk about reconciling and I know reconciliation sounds like oh yeah we're we're just going to be friends again. Well, I'm not sure how much we were friends in the first place. But one of the other definitions of reconciliation is tied to essentially like a financial ledger, balancing the books. Well, Let's balance the books. If we're going to talk about reconciling what was done to our people, there has to be restoration. So there is no conversation about that, even during our special month. <laughs> so that's part of my concern. Part of my concern is not properly addressing what Native people are experiencing. That's why you got to prop up those who have fit within the American system, you know, the, the, the Native American veterans, the, you know, again, I'm not putting a dig at, at Joy Harjo, who's the U.S. Poet Laureate, but she's had success in their system. I'm not even suggesting that, that she is, is probably, or that she is the, the best Native American poet, but she suits the criteria. And, and again, everybody loves native conversations when it's about spirituality and, and nature and, uh, and our dance and our dress and, and all that other stuff. I mean, look, let's, let's be honest. The two things that Deb Haaland has made news over has been her fashion and the fact that she ran the Boston Marathon. Hasn't been a whole lot of news on the, on the residential school front. Hasn't been a whole lot of news on the missing and murdered indigenous women front. And I haven't heard a word. And, and, and this is important. This is an important one. I haven't heard a word out of this administration about the mascot issue. And so why do I bring up the mascot issue? And I'll tell you why. Because it is connected to everything. 
there are generations of kids, class by class, every year another class of kids is introduced to native imagery in the form of, of mascots, either for schools or, or sports teams. Yeah, we had to, we rung in the our special month with with a special presentation of the tomahawk chop because the Atlanta baseball team won the World Series. Yeah, <laughs> that's how that, that that's how it was celebrated. But every year there are children who are in literally indoctrinated to this to this imagery, both from you know the the logos and the mascots and the language, right? That this is what a quote-unquote Native American is. This is the Native American heritage that we're celebrating this month. A brave, a warrior, a redskin, an Indian, a savage. Yeah, these are all the names, Red Raiders. These are all the names that get, get you know, that get propped up for, uh, for school mascots. You know, and look, and I, I applaud the number of states who have banned this practice. And, and I got to admit, I wasn't a big fan of, of state bans. I just thought, you know, put some pressure on the schools to, you know, to take a, a good enough look at it. The evidence is clear. The overwhelming evidence is clear from the American Psychological Association, you know, uh, in, in New York, the New York Association of School Psychologists, um, Native groups. You know, it, it is clear that it is not a good thing to use to appropriate some bastardized native imagery uh, for white people, or, or not natives, I should say, but it's primarily white people. These white people are the ones that lose their minds over the idea that, what, you're going to take our Indian mascot away? We can't be Indians anymore? No, I'm going to be an Indian, a redskin, a warrior, red raider for the rest of my life. Because apparently they peaked in high school or something. I don't know. But those are the ones that, who lose their minds. And, and of course, Every new generation of kids in school, they get fed not only that stuff, but even, even schools who don't have native mascots, they get fed the, the happy little pilgrims, happy little Indians uh, Thanksgiving story during our special month. They get fed, you know, the Pocahontas saving John Smith's life story, myth, you know, made up, lie. They get fed the Columbus discovered America story. And, you know, and, and most schools are still celebrating Columbus Day rather, rather than Indigenous Peoples Day. And then the idea that anybody, including the United States, including listening to Joe Biden's um, announcements, you know, on October 11th or whatever day it was, that it's going to be a shared holiday. You, we're going to call it Indigenous Peoples Day and we're going to celebrate it on Columbus Day. And then he's going to sing the praises of Italian-Americans. I was just letting you know that she was breaking up again. All right. Hopefully um, we solve some of the technical problems. Of course, this is the challenge of doing our remote broadcasting. So bear with us and uh, hopefully things will, things will pick up. I know they picked up because I believe we've got Regan joining us now. Regan, how are you doing? hope so. Can you hear me, John? I can hear you great. You sound perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Regan, I was just talking about how much we are celebrating our special month here um, by by seeing no <laughs> My action. My favorite month of the year. <laughs> by seeing no action. Look, these are the tough holidays, right? I mean, 
you, you, you get into, you know, this Columbus Day stuff and, you know, and, and then you get into Halloween with, with people dressing up as Native people. And, and then we get into November. They call it our special month and then ignore us all month anyway, as they do any other month. I mean, I don't know. What's your, what's your thoughts or, on Or my personal favorite is... My personal favorite is a month that's about us, but also includes the genocidal holiday of Thanksgiving. Because oh, yeah. nothing makes me feel more appreciated or, and honored as an indigenous person than having an entire day where people just ignore indigenous people, but continue the settler colonial mythos of a benign American history. I personally am a big fan. I hope people are aware that I'm being very facetious. Well, um, and, and but I think that we've talked about this before. It's, it's no coincidence. That Thanksgiving is during uh, Indigenous Heritage Month or Native American, because of course we still have to be defined through the parameters of an American identity. Well, and let's be honest, the United States still refers to us as American Indians. I mean, not only because it's enshrined yeah, in organizations do. like Bureau of Indian Affairs and and all that other stuff, but they they insist that they got to stick the word American and this other misnomer Indians uh, associate. I mean, it, it's it's just so very very annoying. But yeah, either they ignore us or they just completely misrepresent us, and and that's what you know that's what they do with Thanksgiving. They're they're still telling the happy little pilgrims, happy little Indian story. Um, we saw the the nutty um, math teacher trying to teach trigonometry by mocking Native people. And, you know, when I first saw the video, I assumed that she was an elementary school teacher because of the, you know, the construction paper headdress thing she had. But she was teaching trigonometry. I, I understand what the acronym SOCATOA. No, high school teacher. Yeah. Uh, SOCATOA is, you know, it's, it's meant as an acronym, you know, an mnemonic device for remembering, you know, sine, cosine, and, and tangent. I get that. But I didn't, was never taught it as you know, some sort of native mockery of, of our In language. a racist way? No one ever oh. taught it to you in a racist way? Uh, no, no. And there was a native person, it was a native student <laughs> in the classroom filming it. And like, no sensitivity whatsoever. Like I said, I assume that this was, you know, just a nutty teacher putting on some silly little show for, for, for you know, elementary school kids, not high schoolers. I mean, and not that that would have been okay, <laughs> but... but at least it would have made more sense in terms of her state of mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> not not because it was, I don't know. I'm, well, I'm just but, blown away. Um, yeah, something that was important to know about that um, was that the school released a statement saying that they were unaware that the teacher taught this way. But then somebody, because I love the internet, um, somebody, newspaper article from like almost 10 years ago in which she is on the front with the card, with the, um, with the headdress on this, you know, paper headdress. And it says like this teacher teaches math in new and innovative ways. So the, t the school was completely aware that this is how the teacher taught it. So the fact that they released a statement saying that they were unaware of, uh, of how she taught this, uh, how she taught trigonometry in this like racist way was a complete lie. They have been aware and they just finally got caught because an indigenous student had to be traumatized in math class um, to bring it to light. Yeah. You know, like we can't forget that this was also and also a number of people were traumatized. Like I saw it circulated on Instagram so much, which is like great in terms of bringing awareness. But honestly, I had to avoid the Internet that day because it was just like so inundated with this white woman mocking indigenous people at, you know, and, and who and who is the person that feels the most repercussion to that? The indigenous student, the indigenous student who had to film it 
in class in order to bring bring it to light. Well, and of course, because of what you and I do, um, we get inundated with the links being sent to us. Like I, I must have had that same link or variations Absolutely. of the same link sent to me two dozen times. And it gets to the point where, yeah, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. I don't need to see it again. And, you know, oh, it was, it was, that was, yeah, that was quite disturbing. But you know what? Again, I, I get back to not just the fact that, that this teacher does this, but I mean, what, what is taught, I mean, native, you know, Indians is taught as a period of history still that, that ends with discovery. I mean, so we were talked about in, always in the past tense. And in fact, even this, this so-called special month, it's Native American Heritage Month, which is always a look back, not a look forward. And, and again, who are they going to prop up? They're going to prop up the most, you know, iconic um, examples of assimilation, whether it's Native American veterans or, or Halland or, or whoever else. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that we talked about um, the last show uh, that I was on in terms of Biden's Indigenous uh, Peoples Day proclamation. And everything in the proclamation was just celebrating those who have assimilated the most intensely. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what's going to happen with, uh, with a Native American Heritage Month. And it happens every month. You know, we, we see the, the celebrities are celebrated. Uh, you know, veterans uh, are celebrated. Uh, people who have participated in, in colonialism and really, you know, small business owners, uh, capitalists, indigenous capitalists. Like, we will see that celebrated this month but not people who have been criminalized. We will not see, you know, our, <clears throat> our aunties, our uncles, uh, and our other kin on the res being celebrated. Like it won't be that, or if they are, it's through trauma porn. So in the end, like we know that this month isn't for us, but rather for white people right. to feel some sort of connection with indigenous people once a year. Well, and, and, and again, uh, when I'm critical, critical of this, this current, presidential administration, the Biden administration, or the Obama administration. I'm not saying, I, I'm not critical of these guys because I think what Trump did in between the, these two uh, administrations was uh, was anything worth noting. I mean, but the expectation of a racist like Donald Trump um, is that, yeah, we're, we're going to continue to be inundated with racist things like him doing the tomahawk chop at, uh, at a Braves game. You know, we're, we're but... When you look at the, the the party that's supposed to be representing, you know, being woke, I mean, we don't see the education department from either the Obama administration or this administration that's done anything to address not just the mascot issue, but the but the inaccurate representation of Native people in uh, in the educational system in in public education. So, so we see nothing. Deb Hallen has been completely silent on what is taught in school, uh, you know, the mascot issue, any of it. She has been, been completely silent on this issue. Well, I mean, we've, we've spoken about this so often on this show, and, I, and I'm glad that we, we constantly reiterate it because it's so important for folks to understand that history education is purposefully mistold to maintain the status quo. And the status quo is to maintain settler colonialism. So with the way that it, like indigenous histories are taught within the classroom, always placing us within the past, which is obviously based in genocide. It's easier to talk about us in the past than in the present, because then you have to reckon with the fact that settler colonialism is ongoing. If you talk about indigenous people in the present, also non-assimilated indigenous people, or people who are um, you know, looking to push back against assimilation tactics, like that, again, the, the fact that we're going to celebrate the, the celebrity cult of indigeneity and celebrate the past is the... It, 
is upheld within the educational system. Well, and it's you know, we're not talking of the about past. the resistance it's, it's camps, their... the frontliners, the blockades in the same way. Yeah, and it's their version of that of that past. I mean, and clearly we are not, of course, um, allowed to represent ourselves and our own identities, which is you know part of the reason I attacked the, the mascot issue so so strongly and so uh, you know so assertively is because we are not. Look, if you're going to teach black history, you're going to make sure that you have black people involved in that. If you're going to teach about the Holocaust, you're going to have Jewish people involved in that. But when when there's any conversation about Native American um, uh, studies of any site of any sort, it is rare that that anybody who is truly of the culture, and I'm not talking about you know you know a a native person or a, a history professor that happens to be native i mean somebody who is living the culture we're never involved we're never at the table we're never a part of that well we're not we're not invited to the table and and it's it's possibly for the best i don't want to be at that table that sounds like a nightmare um but i think it's important also that folks understand that the way that indigenous people are treated does not change um depending on who's in office and that settler colonialism is impervious to this regime change. So when we talk about how Trump treated indigenous people versus how Biden treats indigenous people, the reality is that they're the same. Continuity. Yep. Pardon? Say that again. Continuity. Yep. I mean, it's, it just continues. Continuity. Exactly. Absolutely. There, there, there is no change in that. And I think a really good example in terms of how we're talking about history education is that critical race theory is being banned and uh, in states under the Biden regime. Like that, that is like, that is an obvious attack and a fat and, and also and a thing to know is like an important tactic of fascist, of fascism is uh, attacking history education and how it's taught within the classroom. Um, so I think that the relevancy in terms of like how history education is taught and how it is connected to Native American Heritage Month is so, it's such an important interconnected conversation to have. Because so much of Native American Heritage Month is taught in the classroom. Like how many teachers are going to be having their students make headdresses yeah. for Thanksgiving? <laughs> like it's going to happen again. It happens time and time and time again. And a lot of that is because when we are teaching our histories, as you said, the people who should be at this quote unquote table are not at the table. It's often academics or other people who have, again, uh, navigated assimilation in a very specific, strategic, and individ individualistic way. Well, and, and and you know, to your point, when they do any of this stuff in in classrooms, they are still taking a a timestamp of uh, that these non-native educators and and uh, you know curric curriculum experts have put together to say this is what we're going to teach is a Native American, is an American Indian, is whatever. This is, this is what we're going to teach that they are. So students will, will come out of this and, you know, they'll do some things like, well, let's talk about the difference between the, uh, the Haudenosaunee and the Algonquin, you know, or the, or, or the, the Plains. But there's still all timestamps of who we were. There's never, look, they, when they've done the studies on this, there's nothing... In, that that enters into the 20th century. You know, the, anything that is even taught ends in the in the mid 1800s. You know, and and of course they they skip things. You know, like the true history of you know uh, Lincoln's execution order of the Dakota 38, or 
or even the massacres at Wounded Knee and, and, and these kinds of things, they'll, they will talk about policies that opened up our lands to, you know, like, you know, like we were this necessary, almost like we were a partner in Manifest Destiny, not the victims of it. That's the way it gets taught. You know what? It's so funny you say that because, okay, I'm currently right now at um, the Badlands National Park um, and have been driving across um, a couple of states. And a lot of these states are the ones of, you know, the, the cowboys and Indian stories. And so much of the iconography uh, within these small towns is related to Buffalo, uh, you know, like Buffalo Tavern, Buffalo Coffee, uh, come see the Buffalo. There's like even the flags have buffaloes on it. And there's no mention of the fact that buffalo were systematically hunted and murdered um, as a way to destroy indigenous lifeways. And there's so much conversation about the conservation of buffalo, but there's no discussion about how they have to be conserved because white people murdered them in an astronomical, incalculable numbers. Well, and and again, to your point, specifically specifically to end... um, the especially the native people in that region in the, in the plains uh, region their dependency exactly on this was this was an attack on people but the casualties of that attack were mm-hmm. or the method of that attack was to was to attack their food supply and much of uh, and, and, the, and the role that buffalo played in their culture but then the amount of gaslighting that has to happen or even cognitive dissonance for people in these areas to just adopt buffalo as a as a as a uh, as a symbol without talking about where, why, why Buffalo have to be taken care of in the way they're taken care of is because of white supremacy. And those conversations aren't having happening in these small towns. Um, they aren't happening on a larger scale either. They're not be happening by, um, by environmentalists or conservatorships either within these national parks. And I think that it's really telling in terms of how we're talking about how history is told. This is a perfect example of that. Uh, as I've been driving through and seeing these beautiful lands and, you know, experiencing this like really beautiful, um, like right now I'm looking at Buffalo and it's, it's fantastic and it takes my breath away, but I'm also entered Badlands National Park and there was no, you know, there was no mention of indigenous people um, or no mention of indigenous, uh, of, of why the Buffalo have to be taken care of in this very specific way. And also they don't have to be taken care of in this specific way. They're still being withheld from us in national parks, as we've discussed on this radio show before, the national parks are anti-indigenous. Right, right. No, it is, uh, <laughs> it, it is. And it all comes back to how, it all comes back to how indigenous people, how we're taught within classrooms, how we're perceived within the larger public. And often it's either as a resource to be extracted, as a mascot or symbol in order to sell something and to, to, to flag a more authentic um, identity and a true American, if you will, identity, or, you know, in the past, just so, so far in the past that there is no need for people to be accountable to the present day indigenous people. Well, and, and the other narrative that, that when, when they do venture this far out to suggest that native people were somehow victims of progress. And in other words, we were too primitive for where the native the people were somehow what? Can you say that again? That we were the victims of progress, that, that we were too primitive to, um, oh, of to adapt to the a dying changing... civilization, the dying kind. Right. And, and, you know, and it's like they say there, there are, you know, they, you know, they, they characterize people as a people who are dying and a people who are, or, or, people who are in decline and a people who are on the, 
uh, on the rise. And we were characterized, and in fact, it, it wasn't even characterized. We were made to be the people on the decline. And so when, when it's somehow like we're, we're just a victim of evolution, like it's an evolutionary um, uh, curse that, mm -hmm. you know, that plagued Native people, not the, the pure violence. It's like, you know, one of the things I, talk, I, I have to remind people, when Lincoln signs the execution order for the Dakota 38, it's at the, they get executed at the very end of 1862, uh, coincidentally a week before the Emancipation Proclamation becomes law. But at the beginning of 1862 is when Lincoln signs the Homestead Act into law. And so th the very conflict that, that these Dakota are being you know, executed for was initiated by this idea of, of opening up native lands. And, and not to like Michael Landon and, and, and his little girls and little house on the prairie. We were talking about violent, aggressive, greedy white folks who are who just have the they realize that they they may have an opportunity to enrich themselves at the you know uh, by by acquiring or by by taking native lands and that's exactly what took place well the, the it was in order for the homestead act to be successful and in order for settlers to continue to do large and violent land grabs it needed to be sold synonymously with uh, with the archetype of a dying Indian exactly. in order to uh, to placate settler guilt. It had to be seen that we were dying or dying off or unworthy of, of civilization in order to uh, to really like sell the idea of manifest destiny to white people. Well, um, even more is, than that, you know, we, an incredibly we, we, strategic marketing campaign. We had to be demonized, you know, so if we, if we weren't dying, then we, we needed to be dying. And so, I mean, this is where you get L. Frank Baum calling for our extermination because we, we, you know, better that we die than than remain the the the, the miserable uh, beings that we were. I mean, the wretched beings that we were. That's that's you know that's his his exactly. editorial that you have to demonize us. So the idea of taking our land was actually a good thing because you know it's it's about good versus evil. And that's where you saw the caricatures that we see adopted in um, sports mascots. At, in high schools or even, you know, as we've talked about, like with other uh, like um, with like the Braves and the Washington um, with the Washington team, like with a number of different teams. We see these racist character caricatures come out of this time because it was also part of the campaign in terms of to show that we were unworthy of life. We had to be depicted in uh, political cartoons and in other ways as often lazy or drunk or um, or uh or worthless or useless, or as if we are disorganized and incapable of taking care of ourselves and dependent on the state. So we see a lot of this imagery um, of uh, character, you know, of like racist characterizations of indigenous people come out of this time at the same time that the Homestead Act uh, is signed. And we see a massive amount of land grabs happening in places like so-called Oregon. And then in conjunction with Buffalo being hunted in order to annihilate Plains folks, uh, at the same time, it's it's all all of these narratives are are interconnected because it was a strategic planning in a way to just like completely destroy indigenous populations. Like that was the intention of these things. So when we talk about how these histories are taught in the classrooms, if they're not having an intersectional, interconnected narrative about it, then they're just facts. It's just uh, th that are just loose and in the air, and students don't have the ability to really put them together. And that's why it's so imperative to have critical race theory within classrooms, and imperative to have 
these uh, these histories taught by those who they most adversely affect. And it's something that I like advocate for and have uh, received a lot of pushback from. It's that I firmly believe that there should be no white curators curating indigenous art. There should be no white historians writing indigenous history, no white anthropologists studying indigenous people. Uh, there should be no white academics or white environmentalists that have made their careers off of indigenous lifeways. Um, because those white people who work within those fields maintain the legacy of white supremacy. It's just a, a continuation of the strategy that we saw put into place in the late 1800s and just rearing its ugly head in, you know, the 2020s. Well, that's, that's how, you know, uh, a, the debunked theory of the land bridge continues to be taught because it's white anthropologists and <laughs> that want mm-hmm. to keep perpetuating something that has been, you know, proven wrong. Every window they've created, you know, they, they say, well, it had to happen 5,000 years ago. It had to have happened 15,000 years ago. Every time that window gets closed, they, they try to reinvent the argument because it fits their uh, agenda to, to suggest that we were merely a people who migrated here before they got here, you know, just a little while before they got here, that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, that narrative is also used to maintain the, uh, the nation of immigrants mythos that uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz um, so graciously unpacked for us on this radio show with you know together a couple months ago was talking about how uh, even that you know is 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 used and weaponized contemporarily against indigenous migrants uh, indigenous migrants now like Absolutely. this idea that we all came from somewhere just completely destroys our creation stories and our own autonomy and the fact that like we we came from this land this is like this, these are our homes. And to and to usurp that with with uh, like white anthropological teachings uh, is just absurd. We'd never needed and we do not require white persons, quote unquote, non-objective views of our livelihoods. Uh, we never like it was never part of our histories. And we are the stewards of our own histories and the authorities of our own knowledges. And to be told con- consistently by white academics that our histories are debunked or rather um, untrue is is demoralizing satanic actually actually that's one of the other uh <laughs> expressions that you use <laughs> but you know and, and this this goes right into being you know really honest about this being more than just what is being taught to white children's school what happened to our people as children for over 100 years in these residential schools was was a a de-education it, it was the stripping away of thousands of years of worth of education that came from you know, generation after generation, education that was tied where our people were tied to the land. You know, one of the things about our identity is most of the the words that we use to describe ourselves are descriptive of the lands that we are associated with. So when we talk about, you know, Mohawk, which isn't really our word, Gunyagahaga, it means the people of the land of Flint. So, or, you know, so whether we talk about people on the East Coast and, and there's, a, you know, a a definition that it's tied to where the sun rises or on the West coast where the sun sets or any, any land connection that is a part of our, our identity. And when that gets stripped, because you first thing you do is you grab in somewhere in the neighborhood of 85% of all children, take them out of their homelands, strip away their language, strip away every aspect of their culture, and then redefine who they are allowed to be, which is a complete separation of not only a family and nurturing and the teachings, but a separation of place. That is just... John, your connection is acting up again. All right, well, I'll let, uh, I'll let uh, Regan carry the ball a little bit here. 
No, I, I, uh, I, well, first I just want to share with you that, uh, right now, as I said, I'm in the Badlands and I've seen a lot of Buffalo, but also there are some Eagles flying overhead and it's a really beautiful moment. And I'm really glad to share that with you, John, mm-hmm. um, and Reggie as well. Cause I think that, um, you know, I firmly believe that, and as many of us do, that these are our ancestral spirits and to see them above while we're having this conversation really solidifies that I feel really good and righteous about the conversations that we have. Um, so this is just like a really beautiful moment to be uh, witnessing and experiencing right now. Um, in terms of what you're saying, uh, you know, like we, we are defined by the lands that we come from because we are personified moments of the land. We are reflections of the land. We mirror, um, we mirror so much of the beauties of this land. Um, and we're the stewards and the caretakers of, of the lands and the waters. And to remove our, our definitions, our names, our stories, our languages, obviously, you know, it's, it's such a, it's, it's intentionally meant to be hurtful. It's intentionally meant to be genocidal. And especially when we're talking about our histories of where we came from and what we've done, not to say that we haven't also moved. Many of our creation stories talk about how we came from one place to another place. Um, but they are always in and rooted into this land. They're always connected to this land, like Chattahatak, you know, we're the people of the rivers of the Mississippi specifically like that, like that is where we came. And even though our creation story does talk about us moving, it's still within the land that we were born from, that we were made from to deny us our autonomy and our sovereignty and our own creation stories is, uh, is part of the strategy of assimilation and destruction. And we, we will not have it. We will not have it. That's why it's imperative for us to use our languages and to call ourselves by the, to call ourselves what we are, so that we can push back against these white supremacist narratives that are largely backed by, you know, uh, white supremacist disciplines like anthropology, uh, like history. Um, and I say that as someone who has been and has moved within those spaces as well. Well, and I think that you know the education piece, um, where it ties to this notion of critical race theory, which is not currently taught in any high schools or grade schools or anything else. But, but the whole point of critical race theory is to, put, is to make a connection to racism and where, where um, society finds itself now, whether it's you know, police abuse, whether it's poverty, whether it's the, the classism that is directly tied to um, to this perception of race. I think it's really important that people understand that if you don't teach critical race theory, then you are not telling the complete story of any real social studies because you're not doing a, uh, you're doing a complete disservice to, to educating anybody who's hearing it if they aren't understanding the role that race and racism, not so much race, but racism has played in, uh, in, in American society. Do I still have Regan or, or do you still have me? <laughs> uh, okay. Look like we lost Regan. Uh, All right. How's my audio sound? Bad because Regan's connection was so excellent. <laughs> um, so John, all right. We'll, we'll, how you doing? We'll, 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 uh, we'll take it the rest of the way. I guess if Regan jumps back in, that's great. You look, I'm I'm broadcasting 
from Seneca territory, which also is, you know, is beautiful. I mean, it is, it's absolutely incredible. It's stunning to see, you know, most of our territories oftentimes have, um, especially Haudenosaunee territories, are really tied to, to water. And we have the, the Cattaraugus Creek that flows through, um, through the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. Okay, and we can back. Wait, John, can you say that again? I, I was just ex explaining how beautiful where I'm broadcasting from is also. Um, Seneca territory and Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation <laughs> is, uh, runs along the Cattaraugus Creek. We've, we have, you know, eagles and we have, um, you know, uh, the, the trout are, are moving right now in, in, in the rivers. I mean, it's, it's incredible to see. And of course, we're also uh, experiencing this dramatic images that come with uh, with fall foliage. It, it's uh, it is really quite incredible. I, I, I guess I should post some pictures or, or something. <laughs> well, I think that just I mean, the reflection of our lands within our within our people is something that is inherent to who we are, and. And that's not something I want taught in classrooms, because that's another thing that is when we're talking about educational systems. I don't also want a lot of indigenous things taught within classrooms. Classrooms are still colonial spaces. They're still taught with a very specific agenda in mind, which is often funding, <laughs> which is so absurd. And I per, like so there are things within the classrooms that I do not want to be taught. And I feel like I should clarify that because even though better history needs to be taught within classrooms, not necessarily all of our knowledges need to be taught within classrooms. And it's important that we protect those in the same way that we protect the land and waters, because so often even our knowledges within the classrooms, even our histories are used for resource extraction. You know, as we said, when white academics take our histories and make careers off of them, that's resource extraction. So I do want to clarify that I don't necessarily believe fully wholeheartedly that Classrooms need to adopt indigenous uh, histories with it and, and teach them fully because I don't. That's also part of representation tactics. And there are things that we need to protect that are that are important and sacred to us that don't need to be shared. Yeah, I, I don't want field trips to Native territories. I, I don't want field trips to Native territories. <laughs> I, I don't want to. You know, I don't <laughs> no. want this idea that, that we've got to put on, you know, we've got to dance for classrooms and, and that kind of stuff. I, I, so I agree with you completely. I think the biggest issue is there, is there should be some accountability to uh, what American policy has done. And, and, and why? Because if you teach that, then you understand why Native people are still pushing back, why we are still, you know, fighting to, to protect the land for everybody. I mean, ourselves, but, but obviously when we're talking about climate change, where everybody uh, becomes uh, impacted by that. So whether, whether we're trying to stop a pipeline or whether we're trying to stop a dam, you know, or whether we're, we're trying to stop a highway, you know, going through our territories, these were all things that, that the United States especially in the wake of 100 years of residential schools and, and the, the, the diminishment, the, the intentional genocide perpetrated against our people through our children, paved the way for them to do more of this and, and not necessarily do it as violently as they did with massacres, but do it but by abusing children, which is every bit as violent, they could do it under the cover of, uh, of darkness. Yeah, I definitely think it's still violent. It's just done differently. Um, it's become more insidious. The way that the government and educational systems participate in genocide has become uh, has become strategic and insidious because uh, they can't 
I would I would say they can't get away with murdering us, but the reality is that putting pipelines through territories, damming our waters, um, cutting our trees that is that is a massacre. Well, and I, I've got to, I've got to address uh, Justin Trudeau last week um, having his headlines created by requesting that Pope Francis come to Canada to address Native people. Um, over the residential school stuff. I mean, I mean, what a what a crock that was. I mean, oh lord. I mean, you you had. I mean, look, it was what, what was it six or seven years ago when Pope Francis claimed he was apologizing for the the sins of the church um, in their role in colonialism, and then canonizes Unaparacera as a saint. I mean, are you freaking kidding me? I mean, what a, what a crock. What, what an absolute crock. We don't need the Pope. You know what I don't need is the Pope on indigenous land. So yeah, if he's going to show up, you know, I hope people organize around that because we don't need apologies from the Catholic Church. Yeah, I want revenge. Well, and, and again, keep in mind that, that Canada and the United States employed these churches, not just the Catholic Church, but many other denominations to do this dirty work. So as guilty as the, the, the churches are for the, for the specific acts, let's not let you know, the United States and Canada off the hook like, like they didn't know what was happening. Regan, I want to thank you so much. Keep doing the good work you're doing. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Resistance Radio. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. We'll see you next time. Yahweh.